Welcome to Blaze and Access, connecting the community to the disabled world. I'm Blaze Bryant. Facebook.com slash Blaze and Shows. That's B-L-A-I-S-I-N Shows. Same with Twitter and my brand new website. Go check it out, BlazinShows.com. I'm making some updates to the website and catching up on a few things. And while I do, I figured I would dust off some old conversations from my college radio days when I was a student at the College of St. Rose here in Albany. In March of 2014, I caught up with two people with disabilities for a show that I did called The Conversation. The first chat we will hear is with Joe Slunica, who is a sled hockey player, and he had just come back from playing in a tournament down in Florida. Here's that chat from March of 2014, which I started out by asking him how he got involved with wheelchair sled hockey. I've only been playing uh, sled hockey about five years. I've, been, I've played other sports since I was like 19. Um, I started with wheelchair basketball, wheelchair softball, uh, wheelchair tennis, uh, marathon racing, uh, uh, hand cycling, and most recently, uh, sled hockey. Wow, that's really incredible. Uh, If you wouldn't mind, uh, explain to us how uh, sled hockey works, and then uh, we'll take a trip into the other sports. Okay. Uh, sled hockey is actually um, very similar to um, the game of stand-up hockey. Uh, you have uh, full pads. You're on ice. Uh, you're on a, a sled that's about three feet long, and on the bottom of the sled are ice skate blades. And you're probably about four or five inches off the ice, and you have two sticks, two hockey sticks, that are about two feet long. And on the top of the stick, on the on the shaft, are like little spikes. And you propel yourself like you're skiing. You you kind of dig into the ice and you pull along. And the other end of the uh, hockey stick is a regular hockey blade. So you're actually uh, playing hockey, ice hockey, with two sticks. All the rules apply. From stand-up hockey to uh, regular hockey uh, to sled hockey. So you, there is checking, and there is uh, that sort of thing as well in sled hockey. Yes, yes, there's, there's checking. There's you know you can even end up in a couple of fights. Oh, great! Um, um, you know there's you know the offside call. There's the the icing call. Uh, all the penalties apply. You know the two-minute penalties apply. Um, you play with the same amount of people on the ice, uh, three forwards, two defensemen, and a goalie. Uh, the face-offs are, work the same um, as stand-up hockey also. So basically the only difference uh, is during regular hockey you are standing and sled hockey you're sitting in a sled. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And the sled is the sled is made to the person that is using it. Uh, you know, uh, it's got to fit just right. Okay. And you mentioned that uh, the sticks that you play with are two feet long. How do those compare to the regulation hockey sticks? Well, they're made of the same material. Uh, they're just, you know, shorter and thinner. Okay. You know, um 
you know, they're they're thin enough or thick enough that you can hold them, you know, with both hands and propel yourself. Um, and they're thick enough to, you know, to be able to take a nice solid shot and not have it break. Wow. And uh, do they, do you guys uh, have some sort of a supply of uh, sticks in case one breaks? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're readily available. You know, we have, as a team, we have enough equipment to outfit everybody. And in case things happen, you know, you have extra stuff. All right. That's really cool. So what position do you play? I usually play right wing. And is there a particular reason uh, why you play right wing? Is it because you're a right-handed shooter? Well, I am a I am a right-handed shooter. I have a little bit of speed, and I have you know enough upper body strength that I can you know if I need to, I can get in the corner and uh, scuffle a little bit. <laughs> so nice for the puck. That's great. And are the games? Like in sled hockey, or I'm, I'm sorry, in regular hockey, twenty minutes long. I'm sorry, twenty minute periods. We we actually play three twelve minute periods. Okay, three twelve minute periods. So, how do the shifts differ? Because in the twenty minute games, typically someone is on the ice for about a minute, maybe minute fifteen right. at the very most. Yeah, that's that's pretty much what we do too. You know, we're about a minute and a half, uh, at minute forty five seconds at the most. I tried reading up on this, and there wasn't a lot of info. How many people are there uh, on the sled hockey teams? Uh, the um, our roster is typically about twenty twenty two people. So you can um, rotate you tend, all the lines you, out then? You can, yeah, you tend to uh, rotate. You know, you want to have at least three different lines, um, you know, two goalies, you know, and a couple of extra, you know, hands. Uh, so we typically have about 20 people on, on the uh, on the roster. That's great. I mentioned earlier on in the introduction that you were down in Florida playing in various tournaments, uh, and you were a part of the, what is it, the uh, Rough Riders uh, yes, team. the Long Island Rough Riders. Yep, we went down to South Florida in uh, Fort Myers. They they host a tournament for, uh, for about five or six years now. We've gone about, uh, this is our third year going, and uh, this is the second year in a, in a row that we've actually come away with the uh, championship. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a total team effort. Everybody played well. It must be cool getting to meet uh, different players or yeah, from it all over the country. Is, it, yeah, it definitely is. You know, part of the uh, the allure of the game is you know the traveling and meeting other people. You know, and just kind of networking. That's yeah. wow. That's fantastic. I'm I'm really just in in awe. Have you been anywhere else? Uh, we actually um, are going to Ottawa in early April to play in a in a tournament. Uh, because we did so well in Florida, 
we decided to move on to uh, a little tougher competition in uh, Ottawa. Well, that's great. And uh, yeah. what, what about this competition makes it tougher? Uh, well, I mean, number one, it's in it's in Canada. You know, uh, hockey was born and bred in in Canada, <laughs> uh, so they take their they take their hockey very very seriously. Um, so the the teams up there are you know uh, are definitely tougher competition. That's phenomenal. I, we'll get back to sled hockey in a few minutes, but you also mentioned that you play. Uh, wheelchair basketball, softball, you do marathon running, and uh, a couple other sports. So how do those work? Uh, Wheelchair basketball is played on the court. Um, Regulation uh, basketball court, we play uh, basketball plays um, NCAA rules. So they play two 20-minute periods. You have five guys Five guys on the court at one time, two forwards, two guards, and a center. Um, it's a 10-foot basket. Um, you have to dribble. The dribbling rule for every two pushes of the wheelchair, you have to put the ball on the floor at least once. Uh, chair-to-chair contact is considered a foul. Um, there's a lot of pick and rolls, a lot of screens. Um Zone defenses, motion offenses, you know. Wow. I, yeah. It was a fast game. I, I'd love to go check out a game sometime. And uh, uh, It's a lot of fun. I know several years ago you and I, uh, because we, we go way back, and I'm so glad that we do, you and I were talking about uh, – Wheelchair marathon running, and I will never forget um, when you were telling me about uh, how you have the different grips on the chair and all that, and just how yes. incredible that is. Yeah, the the a marathon chair is very different than any other chair that we use for basketball or any, or softball. Um, it's got three wheels. It's lower to the ground. It's more aerodynamic. And it's a different kind of push, and it's it's tough. It's very tough, you know, because you're it's a smaller uh, style chair, so you kind of squeeze in there a little bit, and, and you're low and you're lower to the ground, so a lot of people don't really see you too well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I see. And how many marathons have you done? Oh, I've done a bunch. I've done uh, the New York City. And the Long Island, probably about five times each. Wow. Have yeah. you ever thought about doing the Boston Marathon? I tried. I tried. Um, I haven't been able to uh, qualify for that one yet. Well, I know, you, you know, just keep on keeping on and you'll do yeah. great. I just yeah. have uh, a couple minutes left here, but uh, let's quickly talk about how uh, wheelchair tennis and wheelchair softball works because let's face it we all need some sort of psychological thing to make us think it's spring <laughs> yeah, yeah i know right well tennis is very uh very similar to the stand-up game the only rule differences between uh stand-up the stand-up game and the wheelchair game is in the wheelchair game you get two bounces um to be able to hit the ball um you you can hit it you know you know on the fly you can hit it um after the first bounce, 
But if you need to, you get that second bounce before you have to return it. Um, you can play singles, you can play doubles, just like stand-up. Uh, it's played on a regulation court. Uh, all the rules apply. Wow. Um, you, you just get you know that second bounce if you need to. Okay, and uh, wheelchair softball, I, I would imagine that that's relatively similar as well? Yes, again, it's similar. We play that on, on a hard court surface as opposed to grass and dirt. Uh, we play with a uh, with 10 players on, on the field at once. We have a fourth uh, outfielder, a short outfielder um, that plays between second base and center field. Um, and all the bases are covered, uh, catcher, pitcher. Um, it's slow, underhand, high arc uh, pitching. Wow. And we use uh, aluminum bats. Okay. Wow, that's that's and really incredible. The, the ball is a little bit larger than a regulation and softer. It's a little bit larger and softer than a regular softball. Uh, we do not use gloves or mitts. Um, so when we catch, we're catching barehanded, um, just because it's, it's pretty tough to push a wheelchair wearing a baseball glove. Joe Slonika, it's really been a delight to speak with you as it always is. And I look forward to catching up with you hopefully in a few months uh, down at, uh, Camp Abilities, Long Island. Yeah, I can't wait, dude. The second is with John Evans a writer and author, poet, singer who is completely blind. We started our chat by talking about how he got involved with writing while he was attending college. Well, it actually all started with a particular author. Um, Strangely enough, for uh, a poet, I actually began reading um, a lot of fantasy prose, um, starting with J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, I lost my eyesight at five and a half to optic nerve atrophy um and one of the last movies i saw in something close to 2020 vision was uh one of the lord of the rings trilogy and that actually sent me on a whole spiraling uh desire to read the roots of what made the lord of the rings trilogy and um tolkien's mythos so after reading beowulf and looking into a lot of medieval lits I began working on uh, my first book at a fairly young age and continued working on the mythology until it grew too big, and I began then working on moralistic fiction. So basically, you worked on a project until it got too big, and then you moved on to something else? Yes. Um, What's very fascinating about my progression as a writer is when I began um, metaphorically putting pen to paper, I was trying initially to rival almost um, The Lord of the Rings in its size and scope. But after a while, um, after reaching almost 3,000 pages of notes and appendices, I realized that the material would be unpublished. Um, It would be unpublishable. I just wouldn't go anywhere. So then um, I began working on the book, which is now published, All the Best Things. All the Best Things chronicles... um, a highly fictionalized account of my time in the city playing as a folk musician. And between the time my interest in creating a mythology waned and I began working on this book, 
I was working on a lot of uh, Bob Dylan covers and a lot of new music in that line of thought. So I thought, why not combine my literary interests with trying to tell um, a great Gatsby story with rock and roll? <laughs> and uh, it seems to have worked out very well. I'm laughing because the parallels are not something anyone would exactly think of. And I think it's really interesting that here you were writing fiction, and then you start doing covers of someone who, in terms of music-wise, there was probably no person, no musician that told things in a more truthful way than Dylan. Definitely. I, I would say, especially with Dylan, it's because Dylan is a poet. He draws from William Blake exceedingly. I think How do you know that? My train, this is where, yeah, he draws from William Blake and a lot of um, poetry around um, the turn of the century. And, you know, he's been, he's been compared to many poets in the past. Um, you know, whether his, his lines are truly poetic is, is debatable. I, 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 I think they are. But um, the one thing which struck me early on, and I think this is where my pro- thought process went, I can't write the freaking Lord of the Rings. It's been done before. Hell, they threw dragons in it and made freaking Aragon. So what I should do is, hey, write the next great American novel. Hmm, well, what's the one thing which has impacted, um, you know, the, the better part of the 20th century and has influenced the 21st century? Oh, rock and roll. Okay, so w- what's a great American novel? Gatsby. Oh, that's cool. Who's, who's my favorite um, artist in in the music genre? That'd be Dylan. I put the two together, and out of this really wacky uh, and rather absurd uh, parallel, I began working on uh, the manuscripts, which became uh, the book which we have today. And after going through innumerable rewrites, um, and I, I could I could probably give an entire show uh, dedicated to just rewriting that one text, uh, it finally reached publication um, on Lulu.com about, eh, well, this past December. Um, But as you can tell, I I went from basically borderline Victorian prose to a very trimmed-down, almost uh, Hemingway novel, now to poetry. So it's a very interesting uh, progression. And... How did you develop a fascination for all those things? Well, um, I would say with Dylan, uh, with poetry in particular, I really wanted, well, starting with Dylan, um, I was up in Newton, Massachusetts, uh, just hanging around with a lot of my family friends who live in a little town called Boxford, not far away. And there's a small little record shop. It's... um, a very dingy old building, uh, smelling of, um, you know, basically weed and uh, lots of smoke. And oh, there you go. You so wa- it's relaxing then. Yeah, very <laughs> relaxing. Very. It's it's a great environment, man. I would recommend it for anybody. You go in. You go in there, and you have the most stereotypical, like you know, uh, deadbeat crowd of emaciated figures by this this small desk. I don't even I don't even remember the name of this place. I should look it up because it was significant. Because there in the corner was a pile of Dylan vinyl and a pile of Dylan CDs and it had this this cute little sign over it which said basically we're throwing out this dump 
take what you want, pay what you want. And as nobody was looking, uh, me and a few of my cousins at the time just grabbed a handful and walked out. Uh, there you go. Thus, thus began my illustrious um, time looking into Dylan. And the first um, CD I had, it ended with a particular song, which is All Along the Watchtower, the original All Along the Watchtower. And it's verses. Um, there must be some kind of way out of here, said the Joker to the thief. There is too much confusion. Um, you know, and I can't get no relief. Those lines, oh, the Joker and the thief. Oh, man, that, that's almost medieval poetry right there. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting comparison. And then all along the watchtower, princes kept the view while their women came and went and their barefoot servants, too. That struck me. As, oh my God, that's something Tolkien might have written. So one song, really, that particular song, drew the parallel, which which made me look into um, performing folk music, ironically, um, through that one little encounter. And what ended up taking place afterwards is I became obsessed with everything uh, associated with All Along the Watchtower, but particularly with... Um, Basically, the the uh, John Wesley Harding album that Dylan did, and uh, the freewheeling Bob Dylan, and that of course inspired uh, my band, um, you know, Wrecked Haven. Uh, but the band was really an outlet, really for my poetry, which I began writing. Um, I initially wrote Dylan-esque poetry. Um, oh, that's another thing too. Dylan's name really is Robert Allen Zimmerman, but he takes his name from the poet Dylan Thomas. Um, and Bob Dylan so grew up in Minnesota, yeah. too. Exactly. Um, and what ended up happening as a result of that, basically, then I read Dylan Thomas, and I said, how about I take some of the same imagery and write deep folk songs? So really, the songs never took off, but the lyrics, people loved quoting them after walking out of you know, a few bars in New York City <laughs> and some uh, bars down at the Rivertown, uh, Rivertown's like Hastings on the Hudson, you know, that, that whole area. Um, I, I thought to myself, after working on this book, all the best things, well, I have this, this cache of, as of yet, unused song lyrics, which I've been dallying with for over three or four years, you know. I might as well apply them in a way which can actually reach people. And in a far deeper context, not necessarily in a song that someone would hear in three minutes, but in something somebody might read in an almanac, a dusty old red, you know, leather-bound book, which would, you know, which you would have on a shelf, you know, above your fireplace. And that image, that kind of homely image, really caught me and captivated me until I began expanding my poetry and weaving my love of folk music, of the poetry of none other than Bob Dylan, and the medieval landscape which Tolkien inhabited and which he loved to evoke through his writing. So the poetry was my amalgamation between two completely different worlds, seemingly isolated from one another by a vast area of time. You know, And I was able to take that power and kind of milk it into this rather strange and... Um, rather interesting manuscripts which has become inside the midnight veil the latest booklet which should be published uh this uh this week wow that's that's fascinating how did you deal with putting all this together i'm talking the midnight veil and 
being a college student at the same time? That has always been a struggle. Um, I mean, I know this past week between midterms, um, I'm I'm a commuter right now. So that means I'm, I'm living at, at home, working on my uh, my pieces. And, of course, all of my mother be screaming up to me, John, dinner's on the table. <laughs> Get your stuff. <laughs> I'm like, oh, God. You know, I was like, come on. No, I'm, Mom, I'm working on a poem. Jeez. Uh, no, come down. Soup. I'm like, no, no, but this poem is great. Who cares about poem? But... I, <laughs> At, at the end of the day, <laughs> at the end of the day, um, there is there's a lot of hope because un- unlike writing a freaking novel, right? Unlike sitting down writing a book, which takes hours and hours and hours and, and hours of careful thinking and plotting a poem, you can go back and scrap all together and write again and again and again in a very short, compact, and beautiful amount of time. Uh, and because of that, right? we are able to go back from our own experiences throughout the day, working on homework, working on, um, you know, all the pressure we have built up and translate it into something which is small, which you can easily fit into um, your pocket, into a scrap of paper. So it is an interesting process, but I can say my poetry has become um, the, the ultimate expression not only of my writing, but of who I am and all the thoughts I'm wanting to represent. You and said I you're a folk and- singer. I, I have to cut you short there a little bit because time is short and, well, so am I. What uh, instruments do you play as a folk singer? Well, I am predominantly a lyricist and the singer, um, but I also play harmonica. Cool. And that's that's all. That's a whole story how I got into that. But like Dylan, um, a long story. Yeah, Dylan. Um, and you know the the advice of a few people said you should take it up because I can't play guitar. Um, I, I I can play basic chords, but I'm I'm basically reliant on um, other musician, other guitarists to translate what I do on piano because I'm a, I'm a pianist. Um, and basically, I'll initially write a song on the piano and set my poetry to the piano and from there have somebody else translate to guitar for live performance. That's great. So where is The Midnight Veil going to be published so that people can take a look at it? Um, Inside The Midnight Veil should be published on lulu.com, L-U-L-U.com, probably by next Wednesday. can't, can't keep track of any of the dates at the moment. No, um, we're all at that point. By the, by the latest, and it should be uh, it should be amazing. Uh, right now, we're just working on the cover art to make it as poignant as possible uh, through a few friends of mine, and uh, you know, we hope it uh, can reach uh, many audiences. John Evans is a writer. He is a musician. His latest work, Inside the Midnight Veil, will be published on lulu.com, L-U-L-U dot com, later next week. John, we will talk soon. Thanks so much for being a part of the show. I very much appreciate it. Same here, man. It was fantastic. A delight. All the best. Joe Sloninka and John Evans, kind enough to join me back when I barely knew how to interview during my college days.